0: Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who brings us great comfort. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Today, Jesus shares the story of two men, the rich man and Lazarus. And these two men have entirely different stories when it comes to life. One was rich, the other had nothing. One had health, the other was so sick that dogs came and licked his wounds. One had friends and people lined up to associate with him, while the other could only find solace in those same dogs licking his wounds. You would think that these two men lived worlds apart from each other. One lived in a high-rise, the other lived in a ghetto, one lived in America, one other lived in South America, but no. They were completely visible to each other, so much so that Lazarus could see the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table and long for them. And so we have two men who could not have been more different or had different experiences with this life. Moreover, as people saw these two men, people would probably ascribe virtue to the rich man, Each person would have walked by and would have regarded the rich man as blessed beyond measure. And they would say to themselves, hey, this guy must be living right. God must love this guy. Look at his life. And then they would endeavor to imitate whatever that rich man was doing. They'd want to live like him and be like him. But to poor Lazarus, they would probably walk by and try not to make eye contact. They would walk by him as if he were not there, and they would think to themselves, this guy must have made some mistake in life. God must be punishing him. He must be reserve- deserving and receiving his just deserts." And so these two men would have gone throughout their lives. One regarded as virtuous and good, the other regarded as a nobody and nothing. One thought of as healthy and wise, the other regarded as poor a uh, fool on the side of the road. One would never be ignored and always be praised. The other would be ignored, and that was his way of life and was almost preferable to him, most likely, than being despised. One received the love and affections of people, and the other had to content himself with just the love of God. Yet we see from all of this that God does not see things the way we see him. As we look at the life of the rich man and Lazarus, he doesn't fall victim to our carnal perceptions of things in this life. While we look at the rich man and ascribe to him every sort of wisdom and virtue and self-worth, God sees him for who he really is. And while men look at poor Lazarus and see nothing worthy of praise, evenly resembling a grain of wisdom, God sees him for who he really is. God sees one man who has despised and rejected him for the pleasures of the flesh in this life, and God sees another man who is his child, who has been given wisdom unto salvation. And this is important for us to see and remember as we live in this world. Because God does not account for blessings in the same way that the world does. The greatest blessings that God bestows surpass full bellies and full bank accounts. Earthly wealth can even at times be accounted as the wrath of God. As God's wrath is often seen when God hands men over to their passions for the destruction of their flesh. While being wealthy is not necessarily a sin, the love of money is the root of all evil. And sometimes God says, you want money to be your God. Well, here's plenty of it. You want wealth and pleasure to be your God. Here's plenty of it. We'll see how that accounts for you on the last day. And this is why St. John warns us by saying, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, This is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God will abide forever. See, it's evil when men make idols out of earthly wealth, earthly pleasure, earthly wisdom. God is often in the business of depriving us of our idols, So we don't succumb to them i think we have to consider this how much of our lives are preoccupied with the pursuit and the defense of earthly pleasure we must think of our priorities what do we love what is worthy of our time what do we treasure in our hearts and hold sacred now pious Christians will say that we love the word of God we love the mercy of Christ the forgiveness of sins and those are the right answers these are the things we're called to love and delight in from God but I suspect just a little bit that's not reality in a case of our sinful hearts as we have a fallen and sinful nature and a fallen and sinful flesh that does not desire these things And while it should be the desire, for many, the desire is there, but it isn't how we live. As we examine our lives, we can look at how much time we spend seeking nothing but bland, plain, and simple pleasure. How many hours do we sit in front of a television set, hoping to be entertained? How much of our talk is just really us trying to prove our political talking points that we've been fed? from the talking heads on TV? How much of our time is consumed with vanity? How much money do we throw away on temporary thrills and short-term comforts? How many of us are willing to waste hours staring at the what's new on Netflix? What do we spend time talking to our spouses and our children about? This will reveal what we love this is where we reveal what we want to share with others whom we love. Do we talk to our spouses and children at all? Or are we just content to gaze at our own navel? Now let's invert that question. How often do we examine ourselves and honestly seek the life of repentance? How much time do we spend in prayer? When we pray the Lord's Prayer, do we actually think about what we're praying for as we go through the seven petitions or do we just rattle off the words? Do we interact with God's Word on days other than Sunday? And on Sundays, do we come joyfully to receive the means of grace or do we come when we have nothing else going on? And when we do come to church, how much of the service is spent looking at the people around us or thinking about what we're going to do during the week? or even just thinking about what we're gonna have for lunch. When we talk to our loved ones, do we talk about Christ, faith, love, repentance, forgiveness? See, these are questions that bear an eternal significance. We see what happens to the rich man and Lazarus as Jesus tells us the parable, the one who had nothing but pleasure in this life had nothing but torment. And the next. And the one who had nothing but sorrow in this life receives nothing but eternal comfort in the next. The rich man was surprised to find himself in hell. He had nothing but pleasure in this life. And when he looks up and sees Abraham, he says, Father Abraham! He calls him his father because he viewed himself as a son of Abraham. He thought that he was an heir of the promises of God. He thought he was an Israelite. And that meant that in his mind, he was favored by God. Yet he finds himself in eternal torment. Why? Because his life was devoid of faith. It was full of other stuff. He filled his life with food, great clothes, many adoring friends, and every earthly comfort that he could afford. But that meant nothing in the end. His heart was set so much on earthly pleasures that he would give lip service to being a child of Abraham, but in his heart, he was far from God. He did not delight in what God delights in. He did not love what God had to give him. The Prophet Micah says, Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in mercy. And yet this man did not really view himself as a man who needed mercy. In Psalm 37, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and do justice as the noonday. And yet, this man's delight was not in the Lord. This man's desire in his heart was not in the gifts and the promises of God. They were in the fleeting pleasures that he could collect from day to day. Here we see that God's delight is not in those pleasures of the flesh. God does not delight in our personal happiness. No, God delights in mercy. God delights in bestowing righteousness upon undeserving sinners. No, see, that's what the rich man was missing. He did not see himself as an undeserving sinner. No, he saw him as the willful recipient of whatever good he could get. It bought him everything he thought he needed. His wealth was his God. God was not impressed, though. And this man took no thought of God's will and was unconcerned about the forgiveness of sins. And he just assumed he was right with God because, well, look at his life. He had everything he wanted and he burned for it now we look at poor lazarus the man who had nothing good in his life and is welcomed into paradise he's embraced by father abraham he had no consolation he was clothed in rags yearning for scraps being tended to by dogs lazarus is the one who was truly blessed though as we look at his broken and destitute life God says, Lazarus is the blessed one. Why? Because his consolation, his hope, his comfort was in nothing other than the promises of God. And this Lazarus had the righteousness of God that comes by faith alone. No one would have looked at Lazarus and said, man, I want to be like him. Yet we see that God was merciful to him. And while Lazarus had nothing when it comes to earthly pleasure or earthly comfort, he had the promises of life and salvation in Christ Jesus alone. And in this way, Lazarus was rich in faith. His comfort far surpassed the delights of the rich man's table because he had the promised Savior. Perhaps we should learn from Lazarus what it means to be truly blessed as we scroll through social media and we see people uh, putting up pictures of their big houses or putting up pictures of their fancy meals and they have the hashtag blessed on their little page we need to reconsider what that means because perhaps sometimes being blessed by God is to have an empty stomach and an even emptier bank account Perhaps sometimes to be blessed by God may mean that we are struggling to get by and have a continual and nagging health problem. It may mean that we're socially rejected and despised by other people. Perhaps being blessed by God can mean that God is stripping us of all earthly comfort so that we have nothing left to do but to cling to him. To flee from the vain pleasures of life. Perhaps to be blessed by God is to have nothing in the world other than the promise of Jesus set before us, so that when this world wastes away and undergoes its final divine judgment, we don't burn with it as we cling to those things that are perishing. You know, years ago, a long time ago, uh, Professor David Adams at the seminary uh, during one of the chapel services prayed a very kind of jarring prayer during the service. And as I heard him pray and prayed along with him, I kind of at the moment was thinking, man, don't answer this prayer, Lord. But he was right. He said this. He said, Oh God, pour out your righteous wrath upon us. Humble us in our pride. Raise our gas prices until you strip us naked of the wealth that our greed has accumulated, take the food from our mouths, inflict terrorism and plague and poverty unto us until we flee, crying in fear and terror and suffering and humiliation and shame to the foot of the cross of Jesus. And there, bereft of every human comfort and every human hope, we find our refuge in him and him alone. <laughs> Can you imagine asking God to raise gas prices? oh my. But this is our prayer. When we call upon God to deliver us from evil and the Lord's prayer, we are asking that he would protect us from anything that would drive us away from Jesus. So if prosperity, health, wealth, and pleasure would harm our faith, we are praying that God would strip it away from us entirely as an act of mercy. Lazarus had nothing but the word of God and the gospel of Christ, yet this was sufficient for him. St. Paul talks about this as he suffered greatly for the gospel. He even had what was called that thorn in his flesh. We remember that from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And why was it given to him? Well, it was to prevent him from becoming conceited to humble him before God, to remind him that he depended entirely on the grace of Christ. And that is what Jesus tells him when he pleads that his thorn would be taken away. He says three times, he prays to the Lord to remove this from his flesh. What does God say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ May rest upon me. God humbled St. Paul so that he knew that the mercy and the grace of God was all that he needed. It was sufficient for him. And he does the same for Lazarus. As Lazarus had nothing to cling to in this world, he had the gospel of Jesus. He could be content in knowing that whatever happened to his body, God was faithful to his promises. And he is faithful still. Christ has come into the world. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. Christ has suffered the cross. He has satisfied the wrath of God against all sin. He has risen from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And so we ask, what greater blessing is there from God? And the answer is that there is nothing greater. There is nothing more wonderful than to have your sins forgiven by Jesus. And if you have this, you lack nothing. We already possess the greatest treasure that God has ever bestowed in all of human history. We can only simply pray that we're not tempted to set it aside for something more immediate. God protect us from this. He disciplines us like a father who would discipline his children so that we see what we need. In Romans 8 it says, And we know that all things work to the good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Lazarus was called by God to faith in Christ. And so as we look at Lazarus, we can see his poverty was good. His illness was good. His rejection was good. Why? Because in all of it, God was preserving faith in Lazarus. In the same way, we could look at the rich man and say that all of his riches, his Pleasure in his earthly comforts, they were a curse. Why? Because they deluded him. He didn't think that he needed anything from God because he had everything he already wanted. See, true faith is strengthened through adversity as the gospel carries us through our sorrows with the comfort of the cross of Jesus. In Romans 5, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not that only, but we glory in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, living in weakness, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. See, being poor, it doesn't get you into heaven. Being rich doesn't prevent you from entering in heaven. This all depends on the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Yet we also know that our hearts are weak. We have an old sinful flesh that we must contend with, and that old flesh wants nothing other than to separate us from the gospel of Christ. That old sinner within us is very content with money and earthly pleasure. But Jesus is calling us today to be aware of this reality. Jesus is telling this parable to rebuke the Pharisees Shortly before our gospel lesson, Jesus said uh, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things that Jesus was saying and ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And immediately after this, the parable, Jesus says this, Temptation to sin is sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And so Jesus tells this parable to both warn and comfort us. We as God's Christians must be aware. We must recognize that temptation comes, and it comes easily, often, when we have immense wealth and prosperity. Much like what we currently experience today. And we can easily, in that wealth and prosperity, that pleasure of life, lose sight of what we truly need as sinful human beings we need the gospel god forbid that we all have full stomachs fine clothes nice cars big houses loads of friends loads of money and other other pleasure of the flesh and miss out on the gospel i would much rather be sick and hungry with the forgiveness of sins than to have everything in the world handed to me while remaining in sin and unbelief even then I would have a greater treasure than all the wealth in the world because I would have Jesus Christ crucified and risen for me. We pray that we are blessed to see ourselves and our lives as God truly understands and a godly, truthful understanding so that we may not stumble into sin and excessive pride. Rather, we're called to live in repentance. And that means that we delight in the mercy of Christ. We know that God's love is evident in this alone that Jesus has died for me. And this is the one treasure that surpasses all things. God has not spared his own son, but he has given him over to death for our sakes. There is nothing more wonderful and generous than what God gives in Christ. To say that I am a forgiven sinner who's been washed clean in the blood of Christ is to say nothing other than that God has blessed me beyond my wildest dreams. And if there is anything that I value more than this, I pray that God strips it away from me. If there is anything that would cause me to stumble into unbelief or selfish pride, I ask the Lord to remove that from my path. If I have an idol, I pray and trust that God will topple it. That's freedom. It is freedom of the gospel of Christ. It's not the freedom to pursue whatever I want to indulge in whatever pleasure I feel is good, but it is the freedom from my own sinful desires to no longer be a slave to sin, but be a slave to righteousness. And this only comes when God sends various trials and struggles into our lives. It is when God strips away all vain hope, all vain pleasure, so that we find only comfort in Jesus. That is freedom and is worked out by divine mercy and love. God's delight is in mercy. God desires that all be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. God has sent his son into the world that we might be saved through the forgiveness of sin. And all who hear this gospel today and believe in it have exactly what it promises. The forgiveness of sins, eternal life, a home in heaven. But as we live under that promise, we must flee from our idols we must bear fruit in repentance. We must trust in Christ, in Christ alone, because he alone carries us to our home in heaven to live in the freedom that only the gospel can In this gospel, there is no trial. There is no suffering. There is no loss. There is no ridicule or hatred from men that can remove God's promises from you. So set your hearts on him. Rest in his promises, and you will be blessed. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith, the life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen.